Welcome back to our studio where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy. Thank you guys for tuning in. My guest today is Evo Dalder, who is the U.S. Permanent Representative at NATO during the Obama administration, served on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration as a Europe expert. The conversation started with, you know, the basics about NATO. We talked through Trump's trip, but it evolved into a broader conversation about Libya, Iraq and Afghanistan and the role of the U.S. military and NATO in the world. And you know, he was very self-critical about things that we worked on that actually, in hindsight, didn't go that well. It was a fascinating conversation for me. Uh, it was not the one I was expecting to have, but I think it was actually a lot better and more valuable to hear that perspective and to hear his honesty. So check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. And thanks again. Evo, thank you so much for being here all the way live from the great city of Chicago, a place I miss very, very much. Yeah, no, glad to be here. My first question for you is, the basics. What is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a.k.a. NATO, and, and why is it so important, in your opinion? So it's an organization that was founded back in 1949 at the end of World War II as part of a treaty. Twelve nations, uh, two North American, Canada and the United States, ten European countries came together to sign a treaty that said that um, the, at the basic level said that an attack against one would be considered an attack against all providing the kind of collective defense provision uh, for really the Europeans who were threatened by the then Soviet Union by the United States. Basically, the U.S. said, we will have your back when it comes to security. At a time when Europe had been devastated by war, was politically uh, and economically trying to find a way back into the uh, into the world uh, and was being threatened not only by the Soviet Union directly and militarily, but also indirectly uh, by its support for communist movements throughout Western Europe. So it was a, an, a, a treaty and then created an organization that was essentially created to give Europe more of its self-confidence back, uh, to allow it to recover from the war politically and economically, and at the same time to deter the Soviet Union. It also, very importantly, meant that the United States would be permanently involved in European affairs. Remember that uh, after World War I, the United States withdrew from Europe. Uh, it came in in 1917 in order to help the Europeans uh, end that really extraordinarily bloody war, but then went back home. And uh, 20 years later, of course, uh, World War II broke out and the United States had to come back to, to rescue Europe. And American leaders decided that it was a better idea to uh, prevent a war from occurring than having to ship over millions of men and, and, and troops and fight another war, uh, perhaps even more devastating than uh, the ones in World War I and World War II. So that was what it was about. As the, the first NATO Secretary General once said, it really was to keep the Americans in, uh, the Germans down, remember the Germans were the cause of two world wars, mm -hmm. and the Russians out. Right. That was what NATO was about during the Cold War. 
You mentioned the the collective defense provisions. I was reading a piece you wrote on uh, CNN.com in advance of President Trump's visit to NATO, where you said the two things he needed to do while while in Brussels was recommit to Article 5, the collective defense provision you mentioned, and then criticize Russia. And you noted that every president since Truman has verbally committed to Article 5. Well, Trump made his trip and he did neither. Why did you think it was important for him to restate those commitments? And, and why isn't it enough that his national security advisor and his uh, on-again, off-again press secretary, Sean Spicer, uh, reiterated the commitments, but not Trump himself? Well, it's important for two reasons. One is because everybody else has done it, and it's important uh, not to set a different trend. Uh, the fact is every president, uh, when coming to Europe, has reaffirmed Article 5. It's what President Obama did and President Bush, President Reagan, President Bush before him, and every president has done so. So not doing something that every president has done will send a signal that perhaps Article 5 is not as important. But it was even more important uh, for Donald Trump to do this because he was also the first president since NATO's founding back in 1949 to uh, have run a campaign denigrating the the alliance. He called it obsolete. He thought that the original threat had disappeared, uh, that uh, it should deal with issues uh, like counterterrorism that he uh, asserted it hadn't dealt with. And in order to uh, reassure the Europeans that he still supported the alliance, it was important for him to come to NATO headquarters uh, where he was unveiling a a memorial to the 9-11 attacks. By the way, those attacks led NATO to invoke Article 5 for the first time and only time in its history when Europe said, this may have been an alliance that was set up for the U.S. to protect us, but in fact, in this case, Europe is prepared uh, to protect you. And NATO sent over airborne early warning planes to uh, police the skies over the United States after 9-11 attacks and then deploy troops to Afghanistan, where they are still today, as part of an effort to uh, to deal with the terrorist threat. Right. But it, it was important for the president to do this because the president had denigrated NATO. He called it obsolete. And, he, and, and, and that's why it was important for him to do it. Uh, McMaster's, uh, the national security advisor, or Spicer, didn't run a campaign against NATO. Donald Trump did, and that's why it was important for him to, uh, to make clear that Article 5 was real. Russia is the second piece. Uh, there may have been times in NATO's history in the past uh, quarter decade, then, uh, quarter uh, century, where NATO countries said Russia is not a threat, it should be a strategic partner. But after 2014, after Russia invaded Ukraine and annexed Crimea, Russia once again became a military threat, a security concern to Europe. And it was important for the president to uh, indicate that he shared that threat. Uh, again, he didn't do that. And that was problematic. Can you talk about the Russia piece of this for a minute and help people understand why Russia and President Putin are, uh, hate NATO so much and, and why efforts to expand NATO membership are so controversial and, and Russia pushes back so hard on those efforts? Well, I mean, from Russia's perspective, uh, NATO was an organization that was born out of the Cold War. It was the uh, the deterioration of relations between the United States and the Soviet Union, between the West and the Soviet Union back in the 40s, uh, when uh, there was a decision to split uh, Germany with uh, a Western sector in the West, which became the Federal Republic of Germany, and then East Germany in the East. And that NATO was a, was a consequence of that fundamental split between East and West. Uh, the Iron Curtain came down, and, and NATO was a response to that. When the Cold War ended, when uh, the Soviet Union uh, decided uh, to withdraw its troops from Central and Eastern Europe, 
when uh, it disbanded the Warsaw Pact, which had been a counter to NATO, uh, when uh, Germany became unified as a member of NATO, uh, and then ultimately when, uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed uh, into 15 republics, the largest of which, of which was Russia, uh, there was an expectation on the part of, of some uh, that NATO would disappear, that NATO had uh, fulfilled its purpose of uh, deterring the Soviet Union, uh, preventing it from undermining the stability and prosperity of Western Europe, and now it had lost the Cold War. And instead of uh, disappearing, NATO remained. It, it decided that actually it had uh, utility, most importantly in providing the kind of security blanket and guarantees to Central and Eastern Europe that it had long provided to Western Europe, a blanket under which these countries, which had been under Soviet dominion for so long, could uh, become liberated politically and economically and emerge as independent, free, and open and democratic uh, states, all of which happened in Poland and Hungary, in the Czech and Slovak republics, even in the Baltic states. Uh, and NATO membership became a prerequisite in many cases uh, for membership in the European Union and the Western Club of Nations. So while this was happening in Central and Eastern Europe, in a very positive way, uh, in these countries, Russia said, listen, this military alliance that existed to defeat the Soviet Union is still there. And actually now it's becoming, uh, moving eastward, coming closer mm -hmm. to our borders. And, and why is a military alliance coming closer to us except to threaten us? And there was this dis disparity in perspective uh, about uh, the two reasons for what was happening. Right. Is adding a new members the biggest irritant, or is it more sort of specific military assets like missile defense systems in Poland or, or radar in Turkey and things that encroach upon their sphere of influence? So it's both. It's both. It's, it's fundamentally about the extent, the, the expansion of, of membership, uh, particularly when it comes to countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union. So Georgia and Ukraine and to some extent the Baltic states, although you know, the U.S. never recognized the Baltic states as being part of the Soviet Union. Uh, but Ukraine clearly and Georgia uh, clearly were part of the Soviet Union. And the idea of offering those country memberships when Russia in some sense still thinks that they have a special relationship with these countries because of uh, history, because of uh, uh, their incorporation to the Soviet Union is, is one of the, of the friction points. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why Putin really since around 2006 or seven, has been indicating a deep distrust of NATO. But it's also true that as NATO enlarged, as it became it moved closer to, uh, to, to Russian borders, uh, military capabilities were deployed. Uh, you mentioned two of them, missile defense systems in, in Poland and Romania, uh, radar as part of that missile defense system in Turkey, uh, that seemed to encroach on, on Russia's uh, own sphere of in influence in his own territory. Now we are also deploying troops into the Baltic states, into Poland. Uh, the U.S. is rotating a brigade of uh, armored combat brigade into, into Eastern Europe, all of which the Russians are claiming are a threat to them, while, of course, the Russians are behaving in ways that uh, NATO th feels threatening. And, and, and now we're back into this dynamic where both sides are, are ratcheting up their military pressure and military capabilities and justifying it by the actions of the other. Right. My last, hopefully, Trump-related question is, his other big criticism of NATO member states is that they failed to spend enough money on defense. The target is 2% or more of GDP. How did NATO member states arrive at that target? And I, and I know, I mean, 
a lot of people, observers of you know NATO or military affairs, will note that Bob Gates used to make the same criticism. It's not an unfair criticism. I think it's the tone and the haranguing of NATO member states. But what isn't getting done because member states aren't spending two percent of GDP? Is there is there a deficiency in NATO capabilities, or is this a, a real concern that you're seeing on the ground in places? Yeah, it is. And I think uh, he is justified in raising this issue. Again, I don't think in the way he's doing it, certainly not in this notion that our commitment to NATO is somehow conditional on on Europeans spending more in defense, let right. alone this idea right. that Europeans owed the United States money. I mean, we're not a protection racket. We're not. We're an alliance. <laughs> we're not a place uh, where, where we do things for pay. Uh, we do it because it's important to our security. But uh, that said, in the year 2000, the non-U.S. NATO share of defense spending of the overall GDP was 2%. Not everybody was spending 2%. Some were doing more, some were less. But overall, they were spending about 2% of GDP on defense. That went down to 1.5% by 2007 and 1.25% by 2011. Uh, so a very sharp reduction in, in defense spending. At the, at the same time, NATO countries deployed troops, uh, large numbers in Afghanistan, in the Balkans, uh, ships into the Gulf of Aden as part of a counter-piracy operation. And we're spending a lot of money on operations. And when you reduce defense spending and spend more on operations, what you're not doing is investing in research and development and the buying of new equipment. So you combine the sharp reduction in uh, defense spending with increases over the, over that same time in spending on operations, and you find that there is a growing gap in capabilities in, in having the kinds of airplanes and tanks and armored personnel carriers and Navy ships and missiles and, and bombs and everything you need in order to fight and win wars. And the, it's the capacity to fight and win wars that deters them in the first place. Right. So NATO is today just a weaker military a player than it was in 2000. The U.S. also cut back over that same period of time its investment in Europe as we shifted intention, uh, our attention to the Middle East. So as an alliance, it's still more capable than Russia. But Russia has, at the same time that Europe uh, was cutting its defenses, Russia was modernizing and increasing it. And so the turning this around, getting the Europeans to do more on defense, to buy more, tanks and ships and bullets and, and, and missiles and bombs uh, is important in the long haul in order to have a, a strong and capable military. You're geeking out with me on Pod Save the World. More on the way. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation.
Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. One of the places where NATO brought its... Uh, capabilities to bear recently was in Libya. You wrote a piece in 2012 about that intervention in Libya where you called it the right way to run an intervention. I was at the White House at the time on the NSC, and I remember the days leading up to that war. Gaddafi was moving forces from Tripoli in the west towards Benghazi in the east, which is a city of about 750,000 people before it was you know, a Republican attack ad. Um, And Gaddafi had threatened to go house to house and exterminate the people of Benghazi like rats. Obama decided to lead a coalition that stopped his army, took out all their air defenses, and then handed command and control of the operation over to NATO. With that backdrop, I mean, can you talk about why you thought that was such a successful intervention and maybe help people understand the complexity of managing a coalition like that, the command and control structures, and how you bring together armies from, you know, 28 member states to conduct the same operation. So we can get back to how successful I think that operation was now. I'm, okay. I'm not <laughs> well, at the same place where I was in, in, in late 2011. Given that's my the, next question. Uh, given what's <laughs> happened in Libya. But sort of a, a macro and a micro way to think about this. So the macro way was when, when President Obama decided that we needed to do something to stop the Qaddafi forces from getting to Benghazi, he made this decision to say, nah, we need to intervene from the air. And the United States has, has unique assets it has a unique command and control structure, and it has unique capabilities to take out the air defenses and the capabilities Gaddafi had. And, and we will use those unique assets. And once we have accomplished that, then, you know, 
the Europeans who seem to care a lot more about what's happening uh, and, and have a closer interest in what's happening in Libya. It's, close, it's after all, only a, a few hundred miles away from their border across the Mediterranean Sea. They need to take over and take command and control of this operation. And the question then for the Europeans was, well, so who? The French? Well, the French could do what the French could do, but they couldn't actually manage an operation that would have uh, Swedes and Dutch and, and Brits uh, and Americans and others uh, involved. And that was true for every European country. The only alternative to the United States was NATO. And why NATO? Because NATO has an integrated military command structure. So it has, led by a U.S. military officer, in, in this case, Jim Stravitas, who was a U.S. admiral, uh, four-star, uh, who was dual-hatted both as NATO's commander and as the U.S. commander of U.S. forces in Europe. And then there were uh, British and German and French and Italian and Dutch and Turkish and, and Polish military officers uh, based in uh, as part of the European command structure. And they work together on a day-to-day -day basis. They are uh, deployed there for uh, rotations of a year or two years or three years, and they really have an integrated military command structure. And that command structure can manage operations. Uh, it did so in, in uh, Afghanistan, where at the height of the, our operation there, there were 150,000 troops from 50 countries uh, that were deployed under one NATO command structure. Again, in, 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 same in Libya, there were 14 countries that provided uh, air bases or uh, aircraft, both bombing aircraft and reconnaissance aircraft. Uh, we provided refueling capabilities. Uh, there were uh, nations that had ships that were involved in, in monitoring the arms embargo at the sea, and they were all commanded by this integrated military command structure that NATO, NATO deployed. And that command structure is run by the uh, political body, what's called the North Atlantic Council that actually decides when and how force can be used and when and how operations get together. And, and I, I was there as the U.S. representative to the North Atlantic Council, and it's 28 nations that sit around the table uh, that decide everything by consensus. And nothing can be decided unless there is consensus. And so you spend a lot of time in, in, in NATO headquarters trying to corral people who may not be uh, inclined or countries that are not inclined to cooperate or move in one direction or another to get them to come to a singular decision. We did that when it came to the issue of NATO taking over uh, the U.S.-led operation in, in uh, late March of 2011. It was difficult to get NATO to agree to do this because you had to, there were differences of opinion between Turks and the French and others. It was also very difficult to turn this thing off. Uh, once you get an operation going, it's very hard to say, well, you know, maybe, maybe we've accomplished what we set out to do. And in some ways, my view is we, we continued this operation for too long. Hmm. Uh, we have re really had uh, accomplished the essential objective, which was to make sure that Gaddafi's military was no longer a threat to his population uh, by the time Tripoli fell, which was in early August of 2011. But we continued the fight, and in fact, as a result, we we, NATO, participated in, in military activities that ultimately led to the demise of, of Gaddafi and then created a need to, you know, who was going to own Libya after Gaddafi? And that became a big issue for NATO, for the United States, for, for the European Union, and, and of course for the Libyans. And we're still working that one out because, frankly, no one today owns Libya. It still is a, is a place in which there are large-scale uh, differences within, among the Libyans, and there's no foreign intervention. 
uh, other than from ISIS and, and, and other places. So it's a pretty it's a pretty dark place. Right. I mean, it's interesting to me to hear you say you think it went on too long because Operation Unified Protector had three separate goals, right? There was policing the arms embargo, check, patrolling the no-fly zone, well executed, and then protecting civilians. It ultimately lasted, I think you wrote, 222 days. Yeah, seven thousands, months, exactly. Yeah. yeah, thousands of lives were saved in Benghazi and other places. Uh, you're right. It's a fair criticism that it turned into a regime change mission. And Gaddafi was ultimately taken out. But to, but to your other point, I mean, Libya is a mess in part because the reconstruction efforts didn't get the focus they needed. And I, I would estimate thousands of civilians have been killed in the wake of NATO's departure. So if the mission was protecting civilians, couldn't you argue that it ended too early? Does NATO need to have a reconstruction component or is that the UN's job? Like, how do you view this? I think this is the big issue. And I think this is the big issue we confront. And we've, we confront it in Syria. We confront it in Iraq. We still confront it in Afghanistan, which is, well, who, who is responsible for what part of any sort of long-term military operation? The article that you cited that Jim Stravitas and I wrote in Foreign Affairs on, on the lessons we can learn from Libya said what NATO did was to place the decision about the future of Libya in the hands of the Libyan people. We enabled them to make a choice about their future because the regime was defeated uh, uh, ultimately in its military objective but then it was politically defeated as well. And the responsibility for figuring out what the future was was in the hands of the Libyan people. Of course, the Libyan people weren't prepared for that. They had been suffering for 41 years or, or more under a dictatorship, and they weren't prepared yet to figure out how to manage their own, uh, own affairs. And the question is, first, when you start a military operation like we did in terms of Operation Unified Protector, uh, this NATO bombing mission, what's the goal? Well, the immediate goal was to protect the civilians against Gaddafi's military. That was achieved very early on in some ways. It became a goal of regime change. Not a formal NATO goal ever, but in, in effect, that's what the political leaders, including President Obama, right. uh, had been arguing for. Frankly, my view, that was a mistake. Hmm. Because at that point, we actually took responsibility for the country what happens afterwards. Right. In the same way that we took responsibility in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and had we gone into Syria, in Syria. And then the responsibility of what does it mean for a country or a coalition of countries to take responsibility for the future of another country? Who is responsible? How many troops do you deploy? What is the role of the United Nations or the, the international organizations? And importantly, at what point can you shift responsibility from the international community whether that's the UN or NATO or individual countries, to the people on the ground. And I'll yeah. tell you, we haven't been very good at this. Uh, we've no. been at it for 25 years. We are still in Kosovo. A NATO war, very successful air campaign, uh, launched in 1999. We're still, or at least the European Union is, in Bosnia, a war that ended 21 years ago. And so how long and how much responsibility is the international community supposed to take? And at what point is the local community and the local uh, people going to have to take control of their own future, even if we don't like the way that happens? I don't think we've figured that one out in the United States or indeed in the international community. And that's the big issue. 
Yeah, and look, and that's true for NATO, and that's true for for unilateral interventions, right? Because I mean, not since well, I guess World War II or maybe Gulf War One, but there hasn't really been a clean ending. I mean, the, the Iraq War was a full invasion, and the result was chaos. Libya was a middle ground with you know significant but time limited U.S. and NATO effort, and the result is is sort of chaos. Afghanistan, we're at year sixteen of a full throated international effort. Syria, there was no U.S. Uh, or NATO invasion per se. There was sort of limited support of um, arming the rebels and hitting targets on the ground several years into it. I mean, what do we take away from that? What do we need to fix to make sure that interventions like Libya aren't just successful in the short term, but that we get the longer term reconstruction effort managed correctly or dealt with? I mean, does there need to be a, a broader role for the U.N. or what's the whose responsibility is this? So the lesson that I'm learning on, have learned from from this, and and I've changed my views on this over the course of the last 20 years, uh, is that actually I don't think the international community has the resources, the stamina, and the political will that it takes for the kind of long-term engagement that you need. The Mm -hmm. most successful ways in which we have done this was World War II, but we utterly defeated Germany and Japan, right. and then we stayed for four years to run the country, right. and then worked with uh, the local authorities to ultimately uh, hand over control and responsibility to them. And by the way, we still have troops in Germany, and we still have troops in, in Japan, 72 years after the end of World War II. And, it's so, and, and we made huge commitments in terms of the economic and political uh, reconstruction of both countries and the kind of effort that, that came out of, uh, out of World War II. I don't think we're prepared to do that for countries in the Balkans, countries in the Middle East, and I don't see the international community writ large to take over that, that kind of commitment. And by the way, uh, in Japan and, and Germany, there were homogeneous uh, political cultures. Uh, there was a tradition, at least in, in uh, Germany, of democracy in both countries of, of market-based economics in many of the places we've intervened uh, since the end of the Cold War. Um, none of that exists. There's no governance structure. The economic situation is, is uh, there are kleptocracies in, in one form or another. And our ability to really manage the internal politics and societal transformation of these countries through outside intervention is very limited. Yeah. And so I think, and I, my sense is that's what President Obama concluded himself when it came to the issue of, of Syria. Uh, if we go in, as Colin Powell said with regard to the Iraq war to President Bush, when you break it, you own it. And uh, we, I think, have learned that owning these, these conflicts uh, is not something that we want or can do. You're listening to Pod Save the World. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop All 
All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. I think you're right about where President Obama evolved to, because when I think back to 2009 and the very long, thoughtful, deliberate review of Afghan policy or of our forced posture in Afghanistan and the decision to send tens of thousands of more troops, and then here we are in 2017, and I'm listening to the Trump administration debate the, the exact same types of things, like thousands more trainers to build up the the Afghan forces with absolutely no progress made on the political or economic front. It just feels like Groundhog Day. And I wonder what you think when you read these stories about, you know, possibly sending additional troops to Afghanistan. And if you feel like there's there's a roadmap that we should be following that we're not. Well, yeah, it's totally Groundhog Day, but it's even worse. I mean, the same people in many ways within the U.S. military that were pushing for the surge back in 09 which at that point was 40,000 troops, yeah. uh, on top of uh, already some 75,000 that were in country, are now arguing that we, you know, a little bit more effort, like 5,000 troops, uh, on top of the 12 or 13,000 that are there, that's going to be magic. That's going to change this thing around. And, you know, the reality is our surge didn't change things around. It provided the conditions, uh, which is what we tried to do, provide the conditions for the local population local governing elites to take over. Well, they did and they screwed it up. And the idea that somehow spending, sending 5,000 more soldiers into Afghanistan is going to be the, the turning point and move us away from what is a sharply deteriorating situation in Afghanistan. We had a huge bomb this week that went off in Kabul, killing over 100 people probably ISIS or, or Al-Qaeda or whoever. Or the Haqqanis who are based in Pakistan. Or the Haqqanis who are based in Pakistan. An issue, by the way, we never really uh, tackled. Uh, no, not even close. So uh, I think we're, we're, you know, it's a fool's errand to suggest that a little bit more troops will get us to a better place. I mean, we, we, we actually fought another war, not in the post-Cold War period, but during the Cold War called Vietnam, where we made the same argument that a little bit more troops, a little bit more bombing, a little bit more this is going to fundamentally change the equation. Well, it turns out it just hardens the other side. It makes them more willing to sacrifice uh, because they're fighting for their country and we're just fighting for an idea uh, that we're not willing to invest in to the degree to which we were in World War One. 
uh, in World War II in particular, and, and the aftermath thereafter. So starting these interventions without a clear sense of what is the goal that you're trying to achieve and how, how would you be able to continue afterwards is, I think, the big issue. And I think we've now had three presidents in a row, in some ways four presidents in a row, elected while running to say we can't be involved and be the world policeman. Remember, that's what George Bush ran on. Oh, yeah. No nation building. No nation building. Bill Clinton ran on it's the economy, stupid. And, of course, Barack Obama ran against the Iraq war, dumb wars. And Trump ran against uh, any intervention in Syria. He thought he ran against the Iraq war still and Afghanistan. So there is a, a sense among the American public that these kinds of undertakings however worthwhile they may be in helping uh, particular people, just aren't worth uh, the costs that they take. I agree with every argument you just made against sending more troops to Afghanistan. But the hard thing to deal with intellectually is you can make the counter argument, or people argue, that the failure to leave a residual force in Iraq of five, ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 U.S. troops is somehow the reason that that country you know, devolved into violence and chaos and ISIS gained a foothold. And I don't know how to sort all this out. I mean, I think Iraq, you you had a, there were there a number of broader challenges. I don't believe the Iraqi political process would have allowed us to force a residual force to stay. I also think they have broader sectarian and political challenges of creating a more representative government that probably are as big a challenge as anything they'll deal with militarily. But I don't know. I mean, how would you respond to someone who said Obama screwed up by not leaving 10,000 troops in Iraq and now we have an ISIS foothold in that country? So I don't think that 10,000 troops would have changed the dynamic. Remember, remember the surge in 2006. So you know, we invaded Iraq. And we unleashed in 2003, 4, 5 a set of sectarian conflicts that had been suppressed very effectively by Saddam for many, many years. And it exploded literally in our face in 05 and 06. And President Bush responded to that to say, no, what we need to do is we need to create a, a security situation that allows for a political settlement. Uh, and that's why we need to surge. So in 06 and 07, we surged troops and did uh, uh, reduce the violence. What we didn't do, what we weren't able to do, was to get that political agreement among the sectarian groups. They were still fighting for power. And the majority, which had been suppressed by the Sunni minority, uh, wasn't going to take a political outcome in which they didn't have control. And the Sunnis weren't going to accept a political outcome in which they were subordinate to the Shias. Right. Uh, and the Kurds weren't going to accept a political outcome in which they weren't you know, in, in de facto in, independent. And that political reality, which we never solved, surge or no surge, is what undermined the system. And having five or 10,000 troops wasn't going to change that. And as a result, it was that very sectarianism that produced al-Qaeda in Iraq in the first place, that produced ISIS, together with what was happening in Syria, uh, of course, where many of these guys went. And, and it was going to happen. Uh, and I think the lesson to learn is, you know, you probably don't want to go to war and break up highly fragile countries without actually understanding what will happen. So the original sin is 2003, the decision to go into Iraq. And ever since, we've been trying to figure out how to deal with the consequences of that particular decision. And I think 
the the tendency as as Obama used to talk about and and, and Ben Rhodes the blob, right? Yep. This the Washington consensus is that if you just show you're a little stronger, a little bit more capable, a little bit more willing to use a little bit more force, it'll be all right. Right. I think the last twenty five years demonstrates that that just isn't true, and that uh, we need to be a little less certain about our capacity to influence the internal dynamics of foreign societies, many of which we don't understand very well, and a little have a little bit more humility right. about what it is that we can achieve through military means or even economic and, and, and political means. And I think that's the lesson, frankly, that Barack Obama learned as president. But in some ways, I think Donald Trump is learning uh, today. Humility has not always been our strong suit. So I asked you about some uh, intractable old problems, a new emerging problem is Turkey. Turkey's a NATO member. It's essentially becoming a dictatorship. Not surprising, this is creating friction among NATO members. Some NATO countries are trying to block Turkey from hosting the 2018 NATO summit. How do you think NATO should deal with Turkey? Obviously, we don't want to drive them out of the alliance, make things worse. But part of the NATO charter is a political alliance that's supposed to promote democratic values, which are obviously being curtailed in Turkey itself as they lock up lawyers, opposition leaders, and journalists. How do you think NATO should manage this challenge? I think this is one of the most difficult challenges that confronts an alliance like NATO, which uh, during the Cold War, we were able to to close our eyes to when the Greek colonels took over, uh, when the Turks in a variety of times uh, had military dictatorships taking over. And indeed, in Portugal, an original member of NATO was run by a military dictatorship until 1974. And we could justify that in our own minds by the threat of the Soviet Union, the threat of Soviet communism was so much larger that having strong allies, even if they weren't as democratic or uh, respectful for human rights and everything else uh, as we would want, we could make that case. After the end of the Cold War, when the, that threat sort of disappears, at least is not as strong, and even today is not as strong as it was the Soviet Union was, making the case that NATO is really not only a military alliance but a political uh, alliance, that it promotes freedom and, and has a set of common shared values that are important. Having a member, not just one actually, I mean Hungary uh, is also moving in the wrong direction. Poland to a certain extent is moving in the wrong direction. Uh, but Turkey is strategically, of course, even more important. And, and what is happening in Turkey is deeply troubling. There's no mechanism for throwing a member out of the, the alliance. There's no, the only way to, to get rid of Turkey as a member will be for all of, everybody else to withdraw and then sign a new agreement because there is no provision for, for kicking members out. You can only withdraw. You can't kick somebody out. So I, I, the challenge here is to, have, to continue to have a dialogue to try to influence the direction of policy of the government and yes, to use carrots and sticks. And one of those sticks is if you wanted the idea of hosting a summit in 2018 in, in Istanbul, uh, when the government is acting in the way it has, is probably not a great sign. And, <laughs> yeah. and the idea of moving it to a different place is a good thing. The other issue is the Turks are very good at reminding allies of their obligation under both Article 5, which we talked about, this collective defense provision, but also Article 4, which is a provision that allows one country to have consultative arrangements if they feel threatened. And they have invoked Article 4 in the past few years because of the Syria conflict a number of times. Hmm. And the allies have responded. Uh, there was a, a threat of ballistic missiles uh, that might be Turkey. And back in, in 2011 and 2012, we worked on deploying Patriot missile batteries oh, yeah, right. uh, 
the U.S. did that. The Germans did it. The Dutch did it. By the way, they paid for it. And the willingness of allies to say, next time around, we're going to come your way when you uh, is going to be reduced. Um, so there is an impact indirectly in the willingness of, of allies to to uphold the, the, the principles of, uh, of the alliance under those circumstances. So it's a very hard problem because Turkey is a, is, is, is a strategically very important country. And by the way, we all want Turkey to be part of this Western community of demo- where democracy and human rights and the rule of law are upheld. And kicking them out of NATO, uh, even if you could, is not likely to promote that. Bring, keeping them in and finding ways to exert subtle pressure on them is more likely to do that. Yeah. Ivo, thank you so much for not just explaining the basics of NATO and, and talking us through Trump's trip, but for your willingness to uh, be self-critical and introspective about some of the stuff we worked on and, and things that might not have turned out so well uh, a couple of years later. Um, it, it's fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. And I think more uh, honest conversations like this would probably benefit the blob in Washington and, and anybody listening today. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate the time. Uh, enjoyed the conversation, Tom. Anytime. Me too. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. 